all want to know the keys to long and healthy lives. To find the answers, social researchers are following the same groups of people over many years. They are studying how the ways we live and the choices we make interact to shape our health as we age. From these studies, we know the importance of both diet and exercise. But a new study finds that our relationships with family and friends are just as important to our health as eating well and being physically active. In fact, being socially isolated may increase your chances of developing heart disease, stroke, and cancer later. This is the Population Reference Bureau, and I'm Paula Scomenia. We're talking with one of the researchers, Kathleen Mullen-Harris. She's a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and faculty at the Carolina Population Center. Welcome, Kathleen. These results are surprising. Can you help us understand how our friendships and social lives affect our health? Sure. We were interested in how uh, social connections um, affect health. It's been known in the, in the literature for, for some time that uh, social connections were associated with longevity, mm-hmm. um, in other words, lower uh, death rates and okay. a, a longer um, life expectancy. But mainly this research has been found for just older aging populations. And um, we had the ability to try to understand what was the underlying biological mechanism that explains this relationship. So, you know, for example, when we experience some threat or a challenge, our brain um, sets off a distress signal to, you know, other bodily systems that get us ready for that challenge. And um, in a very sort of shortcut to what happens here is... uh, certain hormones are released to respond to that threat, and it gets us ready. Our muscles um, receive additional energy. We release um, epinephrine as well as cortisol, and that's a, that's a normal, healthy response to stress. So what's an unhealthy response to stress? The problem um, occurs when people experience stress on a regular basis, sort of chronically. So you might think of, um, you know, living in a dangerous neighborhood where you're always um, vigilant for hearing gun gunshots or something like that. And in those situations, then, our body responds by keeping alert um, to this threat, and it never returns to a sort of equilibrium where cortisol levels go back down to normal. And so when we're experiencing sort of a chronic daily stress um, in this way, our body has a physiological response that is bad for our health. We usually have an increase in inflammation. Um, our heart re- our heartbeat is always elevated. We have high blood pressure. We have cortisol circulating in our bloodstream all the time, which adds um, fat to the middle parts of our body. So that's a long way of, of saying that what we suspect is going on with the social connections in terms of affecting health is it acts as a buffer to these um, these types of chronic daily stressors. It provides a sort of social and emotional support for the kinds of things that we face every day. And uh, we looked at the relationship between the social connections that people have in their lives with these biological um, outcomes and find that Indeed, uh, the more social connections that individuals have, 
the lower these health risks or the lower inflammation, obesity, and hypertension. Okay. And I think from your findings, it, you say that age makes a difference, that our relationships impact our health in somewhat different ways at different ages. What did you do, observe there? That's really the other new part of our research is, uh, as I mentioned, that, that this relationship has mainly been examined um, in aging populations. And what we did in our research is we put together sources of data from four different studies that allowed us to examine the relationship between social connections and health risk across the life course. So beginning in adolescence into uh, middle adulthood and then in aging or older adults. And what we found is that social connections are very important in reducing the health risk that I just um, talked about in early in life, so in young adulthood and later life, um, so among the aging individuals. In the middle adulthood, we found that it wasn't so much the amount of social connections that people had, but it was really the quality of those connections, so what those connections actually give you in terms of social support or strain. So for middle-aged adults, quality matters more than quantity. Yeah, that was really um, an interesting finding that, that we found that the social connections, the actual number um, of different domains in which individuals were embedded, wasn't as important for middle adults, but what was important was the quality of their connections. And what we think is going on here is that middle adults are already highly embedded in many different social networks. They, they have their um, people that they work with, um, their neighbors, they have children, they likely have living parents, and they're in, um, involved in networks with their children's friends, parents, and so they have many different connections. And, but what those connections actually give them in the sense of, of social support or strain is what we found uh, made a difference for their health. So to the extent that those connections provided social support, provided you know, someone that they could talk to with their problems, was always there for them, that uh, improved their health, that lowered these uh, health risks that we were measuring. But if those connections actually created strain in their lives by making demands on them or criticizing them or letting them down, then that increased the poor health um, outcomes that, that we were examining. So we find it very interesting to have this life course sort of perspective that, you know, we think about early, like in early in life and later in life, it's more voluntary where you go out and you get involved in social life and you meet friends and you join organizations. In the middle life, it's less voluntary. You're just naturally in many of these different networks. And so it's really what, what those networks give you um, that seem to matter for your health in middle adulthood. So a toxic colleagues at work or difficult family relationships take a toll at, during middle age. Exactly. So what does social isolation look like? And are introverts and shy people less healthy, for example? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So we measured social integration. Um, or what I've been referring to as social connections. And what's important to understand is that we examined um, integration across multiple domains 
um, of social life. So in the adolescent period, for example, we examined the extent to which adolescents were um, connected to their families, to their friends, um, within a religious institution, and in the school in terms of activities. So we measure sort of you know, social connections across many different domains. And then we, we do the same in, in middle adulthood and older adulthood, you know, just you know, changing the context in which um, that's developmentally appropriate for that stage of adulthood. So social isolation then is being isolated across multiple domains. So it's not just not having friends. But it also means that you know you're not really actively engaged with your with your family or with, within the community or school. So that's what isolation looks like. And so I think you know the question about shy or introverted. I mean, of course, you know that makes sense. Um, but because we capture this in multiple domains, you know, we think that social isolation is capturing more than just somebody who's shy or introverted. Um, because even shy and introverted individuals are actively engage with their family, um, perhaps belong to some community organization or go to church. So we're less concerned that we're really picking up that personality, you know, kind of aspect. And and what about for young people? For many of them, uh, being social involves smart, smartphones and social media. Do yeah. Did those connections count too, or is that something different? Good question. Uh, well, we did not include that, probably because you know, we had questions about Internet access, but social media, the survey uh, on which the young people were interviewed was conducted, it started in 1995 okay. for adolescents. Yeah, and then we followed, we've been following them you know, over time. And so social media wasn't you know, a huge part of our, of our social life back then. But I would, I would think even, you know, that might be important probably for more of the friendship connections than, than some of the other connections. And for the older people, I wonder if health doesn't also affect our ability to socialize. For some elderly people, getting out of the house is difficult. Do we know that it's not health affecting social connections rather than the other way around? Right. Absolutely. That's a, you know, something we always worry about in our social research. So. Fortunately, what we were able to do here is we can control for, which means we just take advantage of the fact that we know what the individual's health is before we measure their um, social integration. And that allows us to actually, you know, say, okay, given what your health is now, you know, we're going to see how, um, how many social connections you have um, and then see what the impact of those social connections are three years from now. So we're, we're able to actually look at, you can think of it this way, we can look at the change in health. Okay, so you're following people over time, and it's the individual change that you're looking at. Right, it's the individual change. Um, and we can't do that for all of the data sets, but we can do it for some of the data sets, and that gives us the confidence, you know, the fact that, that social connections, um, you know, in fact, I think one of the findings, you know, we, tr we tried to, you know, provide a way to interpret the importance of social connections, and we found that, um, that, this, that the effect of social connections was as important as being engaged in physical activity for um, reducing health risk in, 
in adolescence, for example. Okay, wow. So are there takeaway messages that you would give parents or school administrators based on this work with uh, particularly related to adolescence? Yeah, I mean, we, so two, two things. I mean, this is really in, important. I mean, one of the reasons that I, you know, am interested in bringing together this sort of biological data with the social data to look at um, relationships like this is to bring the importance of social factors in health to the medical community. And I think that our results show that when, you know, when doctors, for example, are having, you know, conducting an annual checkup, Mm -hmm. um, either with young, young people or old people, you know, they should be asking them, you know, what their, what their social life is like. You know, how often do they go out um, during the week? Who, who are their best friends? That's one implication that, that we hope will uh, carry over into the, into the medical field. And then, yeah, for the young people, I mean, we, we were surprised, actually, to find social connections to be so important um, um, early in the life course. And it seems that schools could think about, you know, adolescents who are particularly isolated and, you know, reach out to them, maybe create certain structures or activities that might pull in, you know, some of the adolescents who aren't as engaged in the social life of, of the school. And uh, for parents, for sure, um, it seems like, an, you know, this is an important sort of educational, you know, finding um, that parents should be sort of monitoring their adolescents' social life and making sure that they're getting out and being around other people. That their social life has an impact on their health. So it's just as important as as eating well or getting enough right. sleep or, okay. Physical exercise, exactly, yeah. yeah. And I, you mentioned that you used four different separate surveys for this study. What was unique about each of them? These studies are all, um, first of all, they're all nationally representative, so that means that our findings uh, relate to the U.S. population, and they were all longitudinal, as you mentioned, so that means that, that they follow the same people over time, which is very important. And what was unique about, so, so they were all sort of the same in that regard, that they all you know, represent the U.S. population. And what was unique about them is they covered different stages of the life course. So we used the Ad Health Study, which is a study of adolescents who are being followed into early adulthood, young adulthood. Then we used another study called MIDAS, which um, is a study of, of middle adulthood. And then we have two um, national studies of aging adults, uh, NCHAP and HRS, which uh, you know, study um, adults above age 50. And basically, what we did is we, we harmonized all of our measures of, of the social integration, as well as our measures of social support and social strain. And we harmonized all of the biological mechanisms to be the same, those same four outcomes. And then we ran the same analysis um, in all four data sets, and that allowed us to put together our findings um, across the life course or the age of adults and, you know, observe how they were the same and, and different. So you could take a young person and look at them over time and see what happened with obesity or inflammation based on the kind of social life they had. Right. We could, 
we could say, you know, for this individual who you know comes from this area of the country and is this uh, race or ethnicity and gender in adolescence, here's what the social connections means for their health. And then the same individual in middle adulthood and then older adulthood. So will these findings, or do you hope that these findings will provide evidence for policy change or program interventions? I hope so. I mean, one of the nice things about identifying the social factors is that you can usually change them. I mean, some are more expensive than others, but they're usually usually results in, in a number of different options for policy implications. So these findings might be the, the basis for heading off the, uh, f- the obesity epidemic or future diabetes. Yeah, I mean, I think what our policies would help in terms of the obesity epidemic is that, you know, that we can curtail or put a dent in that relationship between obesity and disease. The, I think there's been there's been some movement. I think from from what I gather, uh, we've got a plateauing of obesity. So in other words, obesity isn't rising anymore. It's kind of flat. So I imagine that there will be continued, you know, public policies to work on lowering obesity. For our cohort, the main thing that we're trying to follow is, you know, that the time from health risk, which is obesity to disease. We'd like to, you know, extend that time by identifying what factors matter most and then in turn policy implications that could act on those factors. You know, even if you are overweight or obese but you exercise, that's 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 healthy. That's going to lower your blood pressure and it's going to lower, I don't know, how much of an impact it will have on lowering inflammation, but it, it, it is still, you know, healthier than being inactive. Thank you so much for talking with us about your research. I've been speaking with Dr. Kathleen Mullen-Harris. She's a professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and faculty at the Carolina Population Center. 